Today, I'm super excited to have back a guest that I had late last year, I believe in the November timeframe in episode 97, Brian Ahern of Influence People. I have the neat honor that I was the first interview that Brian gave the day after he retired. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great, Eric. And I will make a point of clarification. I didn't really retire because I'm still working, but I did leave the company after 28 years. Good point. You fulfilled a lot of our desires, though. You left the day job, so to speak, Absolutely. and are doing your own thing. Stepped into something I'd been working on for years and I love doing. So, yeah, that's that's a wonderful thing. Now, your your business is influence people, correct? Yes. Yep. And you um, keep in with that theme. Also have a book of the same name that has just come out or is coming out soon, right? Yes. uh, Influence people with the subtitle, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. Yeah. How did you come up with that? I did want to discuss that acronym, if you don't mind. I don't remember when it hit me. Um, But all of a sudden, I I like word plays. And I was thinking about Mm -hmm. that. And it just made sense. I mean, if you think about it, the what I teach is based on science. So it's powerful. And Um, persuasion is an everyday skill. We're always interacting with people. I do believe Mm -hmm. that people who aren't trained in it, there are opportunities out there right now that they're missing, but good news is if they learn it, they, they start to seize them. Uh, and then we talk about persuasion and we define that. And if you do it well, sometimes it has a lasting impact on people and the covering for all of this is we've got to do it ethically. So it just, I don't know, it, it came to me one day and I've used it so long. I don't remember what the epiphany was at the moment. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I especially like the last initial, the ethical. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the reasons I really admire um, Robert Cialdini, who trained you personally. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I'm constantly focusing on because I feel like there are some really unethical operators out there. And there it are, does concern are. me. Yeah, th- there are. And I think, um, I think anytime somebody's skirting the rules, breaking the law. It it comes from an unwillingness to want to work hard and do things the right way. Um, And when you begin to learn about persuasion and the psychology behind it, if you work at it diligently, like anything, you can become extremely good at moving people to action without having to manipulate them. But I think some people who don't want to put in the time and the effort to learn that don't want to build it as a skill. All they're focused on is what they want. Those are the people who fall into the trap of manipulating others. Yes. And I think a lot of people in society are are pushing it and supporting it because we are in a, quote, hack culture. Mm-hmm. So they see influence and things like that as a way to hack the system yep. and move forward quickly. And I was just listening to an interview with Seth Godin earlier, and he was talking about hustle. Mm-hmm which is kind of the same thing. Um, I have other friends like Christopher Lockhead and he always calls it hustle porn. And that is, there are people out there all about hustle, 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 hustle. And there's also the hustle of reciprocation could be a hustle Mm -hmm. as an example. Yeah. I mean, knowing that people will want to repay the favor, so to speak, that's the, the essence of, 
reciprocity, there's a real um, opportunity for people to do something for no reason other than to try to get you to do something for them in return. I'm not an advocate of that. I'm an advocate of we engage reciprocity because at the core, we really want to help people. That if we genuinely do things that are beneficial for other people, when we do need help, we can feel free going back to those people that we've helped and they'll naturally want to do what they can to help us. So we, in a sense, we can multiply our resources by living a life of giving to other people. That's how you do it ethically, not here, let me give this to you, Eric. Oh, by the way, now will you do this for me? Because mm-hmm. then you feel slimy. You, you feel like you're being manipulated. And that's where you start looking at somebody and saying, I'm not going to accept your gift because I know it's coming with strings attached. Exactly. I just thinking I just bought a car re, you know, recently last year. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, here comes the bottle of water. Here, and I know some of it can be polite, but I'm, I'm on guard for anything anybody is saying all the time. Yes. And that's unfortunate, too, because we may end up missing genuine opportunities of goodness where somebody just, it's hot outside, here's a bottle of water. But people are thinking, well, every single act is trying to get me to buy. We've almost been conditioned when it comes to cars that that's the case because you hear the stories about going in to talk to the manager and they're not talking about anything. They're just laughing and they come back out, well, here's the best I can do for you. So right or wrong, the, the auto industry and car sales have really gotten a bad rap that makes all of our defenses want to go up when we walk in the door. Well, yeah, I mean, they kind of, they built a system, the system has proven effective for them, but it is a well-known system now. And just speaking of the industry, my wife drives a 2003 Saturn View. It's got low mileage, but she doesn't want to get another car because they don't have Saturns anymore. And she loved to go to the dealership and just say, here's the price. Here's what you pay. Have a nice day. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it terrifies her to go in and haggle or, mm-hmm. or deal with people in that way. You know, even though I teach this, um, when we bought some cars in the past, my wife was like, oh, I bet you're looking forward to this. And I'm like, no, not really, because... My feeling is I'm going to go in and deal with somebody that's unethical, and that changes how I interact. It's not a fun interaction like we're having here, and I don't like that feeling, and I don't like thinking that somebody might be trying to take advantage of me. So even though I understand all the psychology, um, that'd be like saying, um, oh, my daughter and I, we did Taekwondo for many years, and we got our Mm -hmm. black belts. I don't want to go out and fight somebody. The last thing I want to do is fight somebody. If I have to, I know that I can. But that, so for me, this understanding this is the same thing. I don't relish going in and, and battling with uh, car salespeople. I'd rather spend the day with my daughter or do something I really enjoy. True. But then uh, um, I guess there's the flip side of it, too. Since you know the psychology of everything, and if you see somebody doing it well, mm-hmm then maybe you admire it the same way as an art teacher might admire a painting style. Somebody saying, wow, that's so classy or that is really well done, well thought out. Mm-hmm. Let me take notes. Absolutely. I, I mean, and when I come across somebody that I think does does it well, I am complimentary of them. Or if I have a customer service rep on the phone and you can tell they genuinely enjoy what they do and they're very helpful, I will always give praise there. But my guard is up, too, when I think somebody's trying to take advantage. And I had one time where somebody was at our home and he was trying to sell us. uh, We were going to get new gutters. And he was trying every trick in the book. And I finally told him, I said, look, I I know you want me to sign tonight. I realize you want to make the sale, but it's not going to happen today. I said, there's nothing you can say or do that would make me sign. My wife and I are going to talk about it. And he kept pressing and pressing. And I finally said, (laughs) look. 
I teach this. I know exactly why you're saying what you're saying and why you're doing what you're doing. You're not going to pull this over on me. We're not going to sign. And and I don't relish having to say that to somebody, but it was that blatant that I had to just call it out. Yeah, and I I do think, you know, to, I guess, play devil's advocate against myself, that sometimes it's a desperation. I mean, way back in the day, I got a job, if you want to call it, of selling Kirby vacuum cleaners door to door. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the most brutal, horrible jobs. And what we had to do, or our our stick was, we'll shampoo a room for you, because it did work well. It's Mm -hmm. a powerful piece of equipment, does a great job. So, of course, everybody said, okay, you want to do that? Fine. Go in this room. And, you know, our job was to lure them in. I didn't last there very long. Mm -hmm. I can see. And and I think that's so over the top that people realize I'm going to, they're doing this for one reason, to have their foot in the door and give me the hard sell. And and I almost wonder if that actually backfires at some point. Uh, The only way you'd know is if you kind of did A-B testing where you had a whole group of people who don't do it and group of people that do and compare the sales. Um, Otherwise, you're still going off gut instinct. And if they think their sales are good enough and that's what they're doing, they're going to continue to do it. Um, But I do think that there are better ways than trying to um, get somebody to feel so obligated because you spent an hour in their house setting up and, and, and cleaning and everything that they feel like they've got to give you something in return. Yeah. And, and uh, honestly, I know that half of the people could just smell desperation on me. I was mm-hmm. broke. I needed that sale. Yeah. And I, I feel like really the first rule, and maybe uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, is you shouldn't have to need it. You should be able to, as Seth Godin says, be able to tell people, no, it's not for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the approach, though, that door to door salesperson is just, um, kind of hitting everybody, not anybody who's targeted. Uh, So you're going to be at times pushing something on somebody who they really don't want anything other than "Ah, if you're going to clean this carpet for free, because I got people coming over, great, I'm going to let you go ahead and do it. Um, But there's no there's no real sense of like, if somebody walks into the store, and they're looking at vacuums, you know, hey, they probably need a vacuum. And so now you can have a different conversation, you don't have to go clean their carpet um, to, to make that happen. Yeah, good point. Good point. I guess you'd call that more of a, is that referred to as a warm lead versus a a cold dead lead? Well, um, <laughs> I don't know that either's truly a lead. I mean, if you're just going door to door knocking, I, I've always thought of as a, a warm lead as somebody who's made that referral. So if, if somebody walked mm. in and said, uh, I have a neighbor who bought a vacuum here and they're pretty happy with it. So I thought I'd come over here. Yeah, that, that's other than that, okay. you may just have people who are popping in and out of stores because they know they need a new vacuum. Okay. Um, I want to pivot into the book because I really enjoy talking about the, you know, sort of real world examples, but Mm -hmm. you cover the psychological principles in the book, but you're doing it in a different manner rather than going deep into the psychology and the science of it. You're going more anecdotally um, with examples of how it can work in real life. Right. Is that fair? Um, there's a lot of really good books out there. I, I think Cialdini's is the best. Of course, I'm biased. He trained me. Uh, <laughs> but his book was really one of the first ones that were out there, and it's sold True. almost 3 million copies. So obviously, it resonates. Um, but the trouble that people have sometimes is they can read this fascinating work by, by Robert Cialdini, uh, by Dan Ariely, by other people 
but not really know how to take it and use it in a practical day-to-day. And what I do as a trainer on behalf of Influence at Work is I help teach people what that science is and then help them see clearly what that application is. So I thought, you know, I've been blogging for 10 years. I've got lots and lots of stories and have lots of thoughts on other businesses and how they've done things. Mm -hmm. So I sat down many years ago and started to compile this and, uh, culminated in a book that's that like we say it's it's august as we're talking it's coming out this month but it is designed for somebody to read it and go i get it i can do that at the end of each uh, section it says how can you influence people and it gives you a, a couple of tips on based on whatever it was that i was sharing in the prior paragraphs well cool. could we have an example we'll just start with the um reciprocity sure um <clears throat> When I was working for the insurance company that I used to work for, I had done some training with the accounting department. And then the following year in January, I was called into a meeting, about half a dozen of us, and here was the problem we faced. We had accidentally overpaid 150 insurance agents in one of the operating states, doubled their commission for the month of December. So it was a $700,000 error. And our charge was to figure out how do we get the money back as quickly as possible. Uh, This was back quite a few years, so we couldn't electronically take the money back. What we ended up having to do was have a letter go from the home office accounting manager to every one of these 150 agents asking them to please sit down and write a check as quickly as possible. So, you know, imagine, Eric, you get a letter from the home office accounting manager, a guy you've never met or spoken to, and it says you owe $8,000. That probably isn't your highest priority of the day to sit down and write an $8,000 check. So we knew this was going to be a challenge. Part of the training I had done with the accounting department the prior year had to do with a study that uh, dealt with sticky notes. And, and the basics of the, of the study were this. Uh, a company wanted to see if they could increase the response rate to a survey that was being sent out. And they sent the survey with a cover letter to a third of the people, and 36% of those people took the survey. Then they sent the survey with the cover letter and a handwritten note on the cover letter. They personalized it, and the response rate jumped to 48%. So that's a pretty good return for doing nothing more than personalizing But in the third scenario, they sent the same survey with the same cover letter with the same handwritten note, but it was on a yellow sticky note. And 75% of the people took the survey. Weird. The thought process behind that was the social psychologists that were helping with that theorized that because it shows more effort, people tend to give more effort in return. Um, There was a separate independent study that showed the same thing, a doubling of response rate with a yellow sticky note. So uh, that was what I had shared with the accounting department. So I told the home office accounting manager, his name's Steve. I said, Steve, you remember the study I shared with you guys last year? And he said, yeah. And I said, if you don't have time to put a sticky note on every one of those 150 letters, call me and I'll come do it. (laughs) And he said, no, I remember and I'll do it. Hmm. So he sends out 150 letters, personalizes each one with a yellow sticky note and, and a little note on it. And when I called him two weeks later, I said, how's the collection going? His exact words were, I'm floored. Hmm. And I said, why? And he said, we've already gotten money back in full from 130 of the 150 agents. Wow. And, and he was blown away by it. Now, the optimist in me said, you mean we didn't get it all back? <laughs> of course, I'm thinking if anybody told me I owed him money, I'd sit down and pay him back. And he laughed at me, just like you laughed. He said, come on, we're talking about money. I fully expected people, some to say, it's your mistake, you fix it. Take it out of next Mm -hmm. month's commission. Set me up on a payment plan, anything except pay us in full. He goes, I'm I'm floored. That was practical application. Here was an interesting study 
we had an opportunity. And even though he sat through the training, he might have missed it. Sure. But my thinking, my thinking was, oh, here's this perfect opportunity. And it made a huge difference. The book is full of things like that. Here's this interesting story, but here's how you can actually use it. And so I would say to any listener, if you have to send something the old fashioned way, you're going to put something in the mail mm-hmm. and you're and you're wanting somebody to do something, take a moment to pull out a sticky note, put it on there, put some little personal message And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at the difference that it makes in how quick people respond and how many people respond. Well, that's awesome. And it's funny, you're saying that and how you're studying the principles, I guess, because you're you're so steeped in it, you're always looking around Mm -hmm. on how to apply. I think back to in the army, I don't know if you're familiar with Gerber knives. They're a plier multi-tool that's both a knife and a set of pliers and people have them on their belts quite a lot. I know what you're talking. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. They have Leatherman's too. A lot of people have that. Yeah. Yeah, The Gerber knife was something that I knew would be useful to me, but I would get in different situations and it would just never be pulled out. So I had Mm -hmm. to make a concerted effort to go look around. Oh, there's a loose nut over there. I bet you I could use the Gerber for this. And then I would use it. And then as I looked around, I would find different things. Then over time, as I ran into problems, it would be top of mind. And then boom, I would use it all the time. Is that sort of um, what you're intending with the book is to kind of help free up our minds to be able to look at how these principles are being used? Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Because it takes a change in behavior. People may learn this information. Uh, people can learn what it means to eat healthy, what it means to, to exercise and do things to be healthy, but then they have to actually do it. And so the challenge, I think, for people is once they learn this, then how is it that they're going to start working it into what they're doing every day? When I coach people, one of the things that I do, if I'm coaching somebody on a monthly basis, I will uh, give them homework every week. So I might say, for example, if I were coaching you, Eric, I would, uh, if we're talking about the principle of liking and one component of that is connecting on what you have in common, mm-hmm. that might be the only thing I tell you to focus on for the week. Try mm. to your best of your ability. Every time you meet somebody, uh, pay attention with your eyes and ears and, and whatever it is that you learn about them and see if there's something that you can connect with them on. That's the only thing you need to worry about this week. So, and once you start seeing the positive response, you'll start more naturally doing that. Then the next week, we'll move on to something else. So how can you pay a genuine compliment? And you really begin to work that one simple sub-aspect of that principle of liking until it becomes kind of habitual. I do think that when people have success, right, if you see that people start very positively responding to you because you're connecting on what you have in common or you're mm-hmm. paying compliments, you'll probably keep doing that. I mean, human beings tend to, when they have success with something, sure. they, they make it habit, they put it in the back of the mind, it just becomes how they do things. That's where I like to get people to, so that they're operating all the time uh, with these principles to get more people saying yes. Sure. Like with you, I'd say, I understand you're a runner, correct? Mm-hmm. And yep. then we can start talking about it. I have marathons and a 50K under my belt and I have been doing it off and on, more off now. So that is an immediate thing you can click on. Absolutely. And it's, and, you know, and even when we just began before we got on air, we were just having casual conversation and and chatting. It's, it's not that hard if people will pay attention with their eyes, if they will pay attention with their ears, and if they're ready to ask questions to allow the other person to speak. And when they hear that thing that they have in common, 
try to dig a little deeper on that and, and form a bond over it. I found that. And I also found just curiosity. Um, I was go- getting a rental car in Dallas and mm-hmm. I noticed the um, attendant, she had on a watch. It wasn't an Apple watch. I'm an Apple watch fan. And I was like, Oh, you know, how, how's that work for you? And she goes, Oh, well, I need it because I'm a coroner. What? Wow. <laughs> well, exactly. And, but she said it, uh, so voce. Mm-hmm. And I was like, did you say corner? And she was like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, have to have my hands and I, I can't get the phone or whatever. And I'm like, well, why are you burying the lead? This is interesting. I just, I, I mean, it was really yeah. fascinating. You know, she works um, doing rental cars and in a more um, mortuary. And, but that's just completely fascinating to me. And I find that with a lot of people and just yeah. actually doing interviews like this has helped me get to know different people because I'm always looking for a story. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure that, I mean, you're, you're doing this with a good part of your week that you're becoming extremely good at asking questions. Um, and, and I will say, and I, I don't remember his name, but the podcast you did with, with the individual who doesn't think OJ committed the murder. Uh, John Eckberg. So you were asking a lot of questions that I wouldn't have thought to ask, but when you ask the question about, well, how do you know this? I'm like, that's a good question. I mean, just as a casual listener, I would have kind of taken it as fact and kept moving on. But you're like, wait a minute, let's go back to this. So you're probably doing this even more and even better than you realize. Yeah, I think it's a habit thing. Um, I, I'm genuinely trying to think about what would be another question. And mm-hmm. and a lot of these principles that you teach, uh, I, I love talking to you about it and talking to Chris Voss about negotiation and and I could do this over and over and over because the repetition is helping it slowly sink in. I can't just mm-hmm. read it and apply it. I need to kind of live it. Yeah. Well, um, you know, to the point of the good questions, too, I, I did a speaking event in Columbus several weeks ago. And there's a young guy that I had formed a friendship with, really enjoy him. And my daughter was there. And he asked a question. I just thought, man, that was so insightful. He So he said to her, he goes, so, Abigail, I've known your dad for like three or four years, and we've had coffee, but what's something that you know about him that I wouldn't know? You grew up with him. Mm. And I was like, wow, that is that that <laughs> is just a very insightful question. And devious. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. So let's roll into um, social proof. Okay. And a good example of that. So social proof has to do with, we tend to look around at other people and see what they're doing, how they're thinking, mm-hmm. how they're feeling, and Quite often, at a subconscious level, it impacts how we think, we feel, and the things that we do. Uh, one of the best examples that I've ever seen of social proof was an Allstate ad. It was probably a dozen years ago, hmm. and um, their spokesperson, Dennis Haysbert, was standing in the middle of the Rose Bowl. So it was during bowl season. And he looks around and he says, this week on Saturday, 110,000 people will fill the stadium to watch a football game. Last year, Allstate filled the stadium 10 times with the number of people who made the switch. Hmm. And I'm sure people are like, wow, 1.1 million people move their auto insurance. I don't know much about auto insurance. I don't like it. I have to buy it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to save as much as I can. I'm calling Allstate. I mean, that, that was just a brilliant use of, of them because the visual and seeing a, a football stadium filled with 110,000 people now multiply that time times 10 it's just like, holy cow, that's more, way more effective than just saying a million people. 
because sure. you you visualize it. He's in that stadium. That is an awesome way to convey. Look what all these other people are doing. Maybe you should consider doing this too. And and so that's an example of something I bring into the book. Sometimes I in the book I I also talk about case studies where if some company's done really well utilizing the principles, and Allstate did it great with social proof there. And then where have companies sometimes done things pretty poorly? And what was the impact of that? I love that you're talking about the visualization because that's a, another thing that I'm kind of trying to study more storytelling. Mm-hmm. I I feel like, you know, Dennis there gave a story and we can very clearly um, visualize it um, on the reverse of it. It's there's also the principle of if you need people to move to help, you could talk about there's a thousand starving kids in that country, or you could show the picture of one little girl who just breaks your heart. Right. We, in the sense of social proof, there there can be times where if you talk about things like that's, that's not really look at what all these other people are doing. That's putting out something, but, but that can be so overwhelming that you think, what can I possibly do? I mean, I'm one person. How, what can I possibly do? But when it comes to one individual and you can say, I could help that girl. You know, my right. donation could help that girl. Um, that's where people get moved to, to action. And and that's a good example of how some organizations just get it wrong. They think, well, if we throw these big numbers out at people, mm-hmm. they'll just be so overwhelmed, they'll just have to take action. No, it actually boomerangs on them and, and they get less action. Um, another example of that, which uh, Cialdini talks about in his book, is if you or I were harmed in a public space, there's the there's the chance that people who observe that bystander effect. Yeah, everybody assumes somebody else will do something mm-hmm. and nobody does anything. That's why I've always told people leadership is if you see that event happen, even though you might be a little bit afraid or not sure what to do, have confidence that when you step in, others will look at you and say, well, that guy's like me and he's helping. I should probably help. And the more that help, the more we'll help. So it always it takes somebody to get the ball rolling. Yeah, that bystander effect is just a, a fascinating, scary story because it, there was an example of it. It was a girl who was literally stabbed to death in front of a crowd. Kitty Genovese in yep, New Kitty, York. That's right. Back in the early '60s, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's staggering. I was just thinking of the example too with the little girl of having somebody walk into the frame to approach the child who resembles what you could perceive as you would impact and have the social proofing aspect. Absolutely. When it comes to social proof, the more, I mean, finding out what lots of people are doing is impacting, but it's always more impacting to find out what people like you or people like me are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, because we take that cue. If people like me are doing this, then it's probably the right thing to do. If I saw an ad with people who were very different than me doing something, I wouldn't be nearly as drawn. And that's that has nothing to do with with biases or, or anything like that. It has to do with how humans have been wired over the course of history. We know that there are safety in numbers. And when people looked and acted like us, we felt we could be more safe with them. What are they doing? That's what I'll do too. And you know, it's perfect. The social proof and the example of the bystander effect rolls beautifully into authority. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have somebody who is, well, I'm dressed right now in a t-shirt and kind of slovenly, if you walk up, you're you're dapper, you're in a polo, you've got a logo, you automatically are going to convey more authority if you were to step forward. Yes. And you know what? It's interesting that you point that out because 
when I got up this morning and I showered, I was going over the chiropractor and I just threw on a t-shirt and a pair of gym shorts. And then I quickly looked at my phone and I thought, oh, I've got a lunch appointment at 11 and then I'm going to be doing the podcast and I'll probably be on air for that. So I made the choice to change. Now, I certainly I didn't put on a suit and tie or anything like sure. that, but but I put on something that would be appropriate for the audience uh, because I didn't want to be dressed down. I didn't know how this individual was going to be dressed when I met him over at Panera for coffee. So uh, yeah, mm -hmm. even that it, it impacted it. It obviously it changed my behavior. I quickly changed clothes, which is perfect. And this isn't being recorded as video, but it's still you're conveying a message oh, well, all the time. And I can do this. Um, absolutely. <laughs> Wave your fingers at your yeah. nose all day. Um, but then, you of know, course, to the authority, well, to, to the authority thing, too, that when somebody um all kinds of things like how we're groomed, how we carry ourselves, what we look like, you know, do we walk with our uh, erect with shoulders back that conveys confidence and authority. So let's go back to the bystander effect. Mm -hmm. If somebody who looks like he or she knows what they're doing steps in right away, that's going to convey to other people that, man, this person looks like they know what they're doing. I'm going to follow their lead. And the more that do, the more people do. And that's where leadership authority uh, cause a change in behavior. And then all of a sudden, social proof took over and people are starting to say, what can I do to help? Exactly. And then there's the dark side, like the Milgram experiment. Yes. <laughs> yes. Where people in authority can tell us what to do. In fact, you know, to, to that point, I am rewatching Ken Burns' series on Vietnam. Mm. And it's, and it's uh, heartbreaking. And I think about it because my father served over in Vietnam in, in the mid 60s. Mm. Um, and as I watched that and they talked about some of the massacre that happened and they were interviewing one young man. So this would have been like 1969. And they were saying, didn't you think that was wrong? And he said, well, they had killed some of our buddies. Right. And I suppose I did it because I was told to. I mean, this person who probably on their own walking down a street would never have committed the atrocities that they did under those circumstances. And it's, and I tell you what, Eric, and for people who are listening, it's very easy to say, I would never do that. But mm -hmm. you never know until you're in that situation. Because I don't think any of those people who probably participated, whether it's that atrocity, the Milgram experiments or other things would have said, I would do that. Well, that's what inspired the Milgram experiment. Stanley Milgram's family was in the concentration camps and he was saying, right. Well, wait a minute. How can a whole society go dark? And to me, some of the scariest pictures of the of Germany in that time around the concentration camp, they're not the ones showing, you know, obviously the horrible victims, but the ones that are showing this quaint family life of people, you know, who are with the women and they're just having a good time right outside the camp, you know, knowing what monstrosities are going on inside, but they're just living like this is perfectly normal that to yep. me is chilling to the core yes and and then and then a a principle like scarcity begins to play in too because of fear where mm -hmm. people started to realize well if i speak up i may be thrown there i may be killed i may be imprisoned and mm -hmm. there wasn't any social proof uprising to say i don't care about that everybody's moving against it i'm going to move against it too so you know, when you isolate somebody and they're thinking, I'm the only one who thinks this is wrong, but nobody else is speaking up, they tend to be quiet. True. And scarcity, it's perfect. Nice job rolling into that. Um, that is one that I see being horribly manipulated all the time. Yes. One of my favorite things to do now is when I'm thinking about buying something on the website, 
and I go look at it, they'll say 14 left. Mm-hmm. Well, what I like to do is go refresh and then it's always a random different number or I'll go into incognito mode on the browser and then it's 50 left. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. okay. So I, there are people who are playing with us and toying with us all the time or trying to. Right. And and what's unfortunate about that is so, sometimes there are people who are and websites that are doing it legitimately. But if we start to get this resistance like, hey, I've been played before, um, you know, I, I've clicked around and I've seen the numbers are false. So I'm going to assume this one's false or this person's telling me something is false. Mm-hmm. Then then we may end up losing out on an opportunity that we really wished we would have taken. But it's because we can no longer rely on whether or not people are being truthful. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I've seen the example where you know people come into your home and they, and they make an offer. Maybe the, maybe the vacuum cleaners try to get you to do this. I'll save you 15% if you sign today, but if I have to come back, I can't give you this price. Well, it's not because there's a limitation on the vacuums. It's really a manipulative tactic to say, uh, I, I'm, my time is scarce. But you know, you said it's a hard sale, right? If somebody mm-hmm. would have said, Eric, I'll buy a vacuum from you, you probably would have darted right to their house oh, as yeah. opposed to talk to 10 other people and hope to get one. <laughs> oh, absolutely. If you call me, I'll be there with bells. Yeah. Even if it is a week later, I'd be like, what? Wow, you're kidding. Now, how, how can we, what's a good example of scarcity being used in a non-manipulative manner? Okay. Usefully. Um, <laughs> I I share this example in the book. Now, this isn't, um, you know, get $700,000 back, but most of what we're doing in a typical day are, are small things. We'd like to just get finished. We'd like to maybe move on. The example was uh, I used to be responsible for prospecting for new insurance agents for the company that I worked for. We had set up a database. People would would uh, go in, they'd put in the information, and then we could market to them. We could send them like uh, quarterly emails about um, where the company was going to go on their agency trip or what training we offered. Well, when we got to the third quarter, having learned about scarcity, we dropped in one paragraph we'd never used before, and it simply would have said this. Eric, part of the reason I'm contacting you today is to let you know we're only looking to appoint 50 agents in our 30 operating states this year. To date, we've appointed 40. We hope you're one of the remaining few that we appoint by year end. So it invokes Mm -hmm. some scarcity. 50 is not a lot, especially for 30 states. They've Mm -hmm. already done 40. There's only 10 left. When we added that paragraph, the first time we sent that email out, my boss came over within an hour and he said, I can't believe it said, I've already had eight agents either call or email me. He said, I have never had an agent call or email within the hour of sending this email out. Wow. That was, and so we knew. And again, so that's not a world shattering thing, but here was eight opportunities for the best sales guy. He was the VP of sales, best sales guy in the company to start interacting with these prospective agents. That was a big thing because I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but l- let's say four or five of them liked what they heard and said, let's do the paperwork because we sent mm-hmm. one email and included one paragraph. These are the the small changes that we can do on so many things through the course of the day to just keep moving the ball ahead at work or to make for more peace and happiness at home. Okay. So that sounds to me almost like, w- number one, it needs to be legitimately scarce. Mm-hmm. And then number two, we look around and maybe frame our message. Like you could look at it this way, but if you flip it and look at it the other way, then there may be a scarcity that you could apply. 
Well, when it comes to framing and scarcity, absolutely. I mean, if I were an investment counselor, I could talk to you about, Eric, you know, given your age and uh, your income and how much longer you think you're going to work, if we can get you to save just 1% more by the time you retire, that'll be an extra $100,000 in your retirement account. I could reframe that using loss or scarcity by saying, Eric, given your age, income, and years that you say you'll continue to work, if we don't find a way for you to save 1% more, you'll be giving up $100,000 of your retirement. It's the same okay. 100000 right? But I can talk about it as you'll gain it, or I can talk about it as if it's there and you'll lose it. And the studies show far more people will take action under the loss scenario. So I would be foolish if I were an investment advisor to not alert people to what they'll lose if they don't follow my advice as an expert, and I would have already mm -hmm. been building that uh, using authority, that they should be investing this money because it's ultimately for their benefit. And I tell you what, Eric, there would be nobody who would come back to me when they retire and say, darn you, Brian, for scaring <laughs> me into saving that extra money. What am I going to do with this 100000 Right. And you could actually take it further and say, over the past 10 years, since you haven't done it, you've already lost thirty grand or fifty grand or, or whatever yeah. that figure is and take it even higher. Yeah, because you're, 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 that's a great application. If you've had that conversation, now let's say you had the conversation 10 years ago, but you didn't know what you know about influence and you were mm -hmm. trying to get them to save more by, by talking about all the upside, learning that and say, you know, to go back and, and look at, because we didn't do this for the last 10 years, here's what we've given up. You don't want to mm -hmm. go 20 more years and give up $100,000 more. What can we do to find the 1%? to start investing it today. And I guess a lot of influence principles do feed into all of our cognitive biases, because that right there is loss aversion. Um, mm -hmm. Earlier, you were talking about Vietnam, and part of the reason that we stayed in there for so long is the uh, sunk cost fallacy. Yep. And it's funny how these kind of run together, because I know we're wired that way. Some of this is just hardwired into us, and we can't help it. I'm sure that happens to you. Even though you know what they're doing, sometimes you find yourself still being moved. Yes. I remember, this was a long time ago, but there was somebody who was going to come over and they worked for the company Tom James, which is a nice clothing. And, and the company I worked for at the time was still suit and tie. And so mm -hmm. I needed some new things, but I but the stuff was expensive. And, and I said yes, because it was a friend who, who had asked if this young person could come over and, and do their thing. So I told Jane, my wife, I said, I want you to be there because whatever I pick, it'll be better if you help me pick it. But I said, I'm just looking at like a shirt or a pair of pants or something like that because mm -hmm. this stuff's expensive. By the time she left, I'd spent $2,000. And my <laughs> wife goes, she goes, you teach this stuff? You better write a blog post about her. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But so, so I had full intention of resisting, but I, I didn't, I didn't just buy because I, the, I let the person come because of that friendship with, with her boss. Mm -hmm. But then once I began to see things and, and how she interacted and everything, there was value. And there, and there were certain things. That was probably 10 years ago. It was really good clothing. There's some pieces of clothing I still have that I could wear today. Um, but my point is, even though my defenses were kind of up, I still was open to doing things. And I wasn't talked into something I didn't want. Right. You weren't taken advantage of in any way. Yeah. Yeah, because if if I had um, if if I had worked for the company now, the company has no dress code. I mean, you you could in your t shirt go into work today, and yeah. I don't know if you've got shorts and flip flops, but you you could wear that. So somebody coming and trying to sell me suits and ties, 
it's probably not going to go very far because I'm going to say I, I don't have a, I don't have a real need for it. Right, you get one for that special anniversary dinner. Yeah, and and I think that's a a big part of interacting with people is understanding what they want or what they need. Now, sometimes people need things and they they don't clearly see that. Uh, I think life insurance is a good example. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. thinks they're going to die tomorrow, but it does happen. And God forbid that happens and your family isn't protected. To me, that's something you do want to push a little harder for because somebody would really regret that if they didn't have that in place. Um, so they don't always see the need. You got to help them see the need. Right. And you personally believe in it. And, and that's a, a yeah. big factor, too. I, I yeah. really I think, you know, somebody, for example, I'm a huge Apple fan. It'd be effortless for me to sell Apple products. One, people line up around the block. But two, I really do believe in a lot of the products. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be a matter of my trying to talk them into this. I would say, no, this is the best product and this is why. And I believe it. If you don't buy it, too bad. That's on you. Yep. <laughs> Which is a different place. Yes. Um, people can people can sense whether or not there's sincerity. I mean, they can see by the look in the eye, tone of voice, body language, whether or not you believe what you're saying. And if they see that if they get a sense that you're not, um, then you go back to Albert Morabian and his study on on body language and, and uh, words and tone mm-hmm. and body language. People misrepresent that all the time. People make a blanket statement and say, oh, well, when you're interacting, only 7 per- or 13 yeah. percent of the words, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's when people feel that there's something incongruent with the messenger and the message. That's where they start naturally looking at the body language and the tone. If your message is congruent, they're paying a lot of attention to your words. By the way, on that study, too, because he did address it later, it's been horribly misrepresented. I've had body language people on. What he was really saying is in the first impression moment, when I say hello to you, only 17% is that one word. Everything else you're taking in about me, how I approached, how I look, how I things like that. So, yeah, it's a complete misrepresentation of what he was saying. People are like, um, I had Scott Rouse, who's a body language guy, and he said, yeah, I always tell people, okay, I'll just stop talking and you'll tell me what I'm thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So it is very, very funny. Now, let's. I wrote a blog post once called I Apologize, Dr. Morabian, because (laughs) I. I, like other people, had, had either read or heard, and, and it takes on a sure. life of its own. But then you step back and you really start looking at it. Um, and for me, that becomes a cue. If somebody says that they're a communication expert, you know, and they throw that out there, I'm like, if you're an expert, I don't think you're going to make that mistake, you know, because you're, you're studying this stuff deeply. Um, right. So I, I pay close attention to that when speakers start throwing things around. It, it can be a real credibility killer. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, what, what is it? I, I don't know if it's Mark Twain or whom, but it's a figures never lie, but liars figure. Yeah. And there's what? Um, lies, damn lies. And then there's stats. statistics. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So now we'll roll into the last one. And I believe that Cialdini wrote about this with a study that they did. It's consistency. And they were having problems with people actually keeping their appointments at the doctor's office. So instead of writing it down, they would hand people an appointment slip and have them write down the appointment slip as they were told. And they the numbers went way up. Right. We, you know, we, we like to say this. We live up to what we write down. There, there is mm. something about somebody writing something down that causes them to take more action and stay more consistent. I guess it's, it's, I would say it's, you're, you're closer to self 
right? When I mm, literally mm. do it, it's self doing it as opposed to you doing it and handing it to me. So the further I think it gets away from us, the less impact that it will ultimately have. Along mm. those lines of writing, uh, there was a study with college students. College students who take notes by hand tend to do better on tests than those who take notes on the computer. Mm. And some of that has to do with, though, I think students who are writing by hand get more engaged with the content as opposed to somebody who's almost trying to transcribe, right? I mean, it's almost like mm-hmm. just kind of looking at the words on a page, but not really reading it and taking it in. So there's there's a lot of benefits to us writing things down. When we write our goals down, we tend to uh, follow through more on the goals. So for the listeners, I would say anytime you want somebody to take action and you're looking to have them to commit in some way, if you can get them to write it down, that becomes that makes their commitment stronger. If you can't get them to necessarily write it down, then certainly put it back in writing, maybe through email back to that person, perhaps with a question of is, you know, do you agree with everything that we have here? Or is this how you see it? Something to get them to confirm back to you. Yeah, I guess that um, probably is why we want to have comment cards that people actually can write on. Mm -hmm. Things like that. It's very very interesting. We, um, when I was with my former company, um, we had a slogan. It was ESSA, Everybody Sells State Auto. And that was the mantra. We all have a hand <laughs> in talking positively about the company and trying to sell the company. After I learned about what we're talking about here, I got the idea. I thought, oh, let's have an essay contest, ESSA. And we threw a Y on the end, right? Everybody tell us why or how you sell State Auto. And every month we had like a dozen hmm. people that were writing in. Now, we offered that uh, we were going to pick the best one each month, and they got a, a really nice pen that said, I sell state auto. And mm-hmm. then those 12 people were thrown in a hat, and we would pull somebody out at random, and they got to have dinner with the CEO on the CEO's dime at the mm. end of the year. So there was a lot of enthusiasm. Every month, we had at least a dozen people writing those stories. But what we ended up with was almost 200 people more committed to getting out and thinking about how can I promote the company? Because after they wrote it down, they they were self-generating reasons why State Auto was a great company to work for and why people should want to place their best business with us. So it was it's those kind of things to read about it, but say, here's how we can put it into practice where we were. It's like ownership. Did you happen to run statistics or back to that word, but um and see if the people who wrote in, if their sales numbers were above average or are they rose above average versus no, the mean? Because because they it was not limited to salespeople. So ah. it could have been somebody in IT, it could have been any part of the company. But here's when you get people who are dedicated. There there was somebody who uh, worked for the company. Uh, they left a, a year or two ago. But at one point, they stood up in a leadership meeting and they said, I looked through my thousand contacts on LinkedIn and I got three dozen that I thought would be great to work here. And I personally reached out to each one and said, you have to come here. We're doing amazing things. And we ended up getting a few employees out of it. But imagine hmm. somebody so dedicated that they're going to spend time going to go through a thousand of their LinkedIn contacts to sure. personalize a message to three dozen to try to encourage them. That's a committed employee. And oh, I yeah. think when you get somebody in any part of the company who's thinking about why it's a great place to work and how they would sell that, they are more likely to go out and tell people you should come work here. Totally valid point. Now, you've um, said before that there's actually seven psychological principles. Yes. 
And do you also go over unity in the book? I do. So I introduce unity. Off the top of my head, I'm, I don't recall an example that I have like in a business case study, but the principle of unity um, talks about, you know, people like to say, well, it's like liking on steroids. It's just, you know, liking really powerful. It's more than that because liking is about connecting on what we have in common mm-hmm. um, that generally or, or paying you compliments. Unity is about a shared identity mm-hmm. where, where it, it's not, I like you, it's you and I are alike where the, the we is me and me is part of we. Best right. example I can give you, Eric, is uh, my father. So I said I was watching the Ken Burns series. Mm-hmm. My dad served in the Marines, and I had always noticed this before I ever heard anything about unity. When my dad would meet another Marine, particularly one who's been in combat, I truly mm-hmm. felt as his son, he was closer to that person than me, his own flesh and blood. Because they they have shared an experience. There's an identity that very few people can can understand. So unity can certainly be by blood. There's things that we will do for our mm-hmm. family members we wouldn't do for sure. anybody else. But there are other types of unity. It could be the military. It could be sports teams with all the things you go through as a team. It could be people in marching bands because of how they're constantly moving together as one. Well, you all and I are both runners. That's unity. Yeah. When you, when you get out there and, and you meet somebody else who is a runner – but even mm-hmm. more deeply, who's run some of the same races or maybe oh, yeah. ran alongside each other. You you have this shared experience that other people can't fully understand. Absolutely. And and yeah, if you get really deep, if uh, you both have done Western States, you know, 100 mile ultra marathon, then you're going to have a much tighter thing because there's only so many people who do it and you have a lot in common with them. Yes. But that's actually, um, maybe you can tell me if this is correct or not, but as an interesting principle. And that is people who are more similar to you or closer to you, you'll tend to get along with better or support. And a good example is I was in the military and everybody thinks that, you know, mom comments are going to get you in trouble. But in the military, there's something else odd. If you talk about somebody's home state, you would get into it with them if you were disparaging and Mm -hmm. that people from different states kind of click together. And I'm wondering if that is part of that principle. Well, I, I think that, yeah, when when somebody says something, you begin to think of all the reasons you're proud to be from, um, I, I've lived in Ohio now for a long time, proud to be a Buckeye. Um, <clears throat> or somebody else, you know, if they're in Iowa, might be proud to be a Hawkeye. You will self-generate reasons. And when somebody's kind of pushing on that, well, you're going to push back too. I mean, we see that on Facebook all the time. And somebody puts <clears throat> an opinion out. Uh, rarely does somebody throw their hands up and say, you know what, you're right, Eric, I never thought of that before. I'm going to change my <laughs> views on that. Uh, so I think it I think it becomes natural for somebody to kind of rise up. And it's like, well, people in my state can badmouth the state. Like you could say something about your brother or sister, but you're not going to let somebody else say something bad about your sure. brother or sister. I think it's a little bit of, of that kind of mentality. Yep. Uh, yeah. That makes me think of the saying, I don't know how it goes exactly, but it's my um my family my faith my neighbors my city my state mm-hmm. and and down the line and it uh, yep. a closeness as you go yeah well i mean just think about this if you know, there was a tragedy here in westerville about a year and a half ago two policemen were killed they mm-hmm. they responded to a domestic violence they were shot when they entered the apartment mm-hmm. they both died it was horrible uh, especially for one of the officers whose daughter had people in because she was dress shopping for her wedding. I mean, just it was 
so tragic. Mm. But I was very conscious of the fact that I felt so much more because those officers were in Westerville. And I didn't even know either one. I, mm. I don't mm-hmm. think I had ever actually met or knew them. But I know this, and this isn't to disparage anybody else, but if it was somebody in a town in Indiana, I wouldn't have felt the same. And I sure. think most of us feel the same way, too, when we hear about a tragedy somewhere in the news says, and seven Americans were killed. We, we feel different about that because there's that... So there's a level of unity with each of those Americans. They're part of us. And it's not that we're Mm -hmm. saying we don't care about other people. It's just natural for us to to feel differently about those who are that we are unitized with. That's a good point. We had a mass shooting here in Virginia Beach and that, you know, it made national news and everything. I I live in the area and. I thought about it for some reason it didn't affect me that much, but because I thought about it, I was like, well, how is this one any different than somewhere else in the country? It's equally horrible mm-hmm. just because it was in the area. It doesn't matter if I'm 10 miles or I'm a thousand miles away. It's not the same thing, but I can sort of see what you're saying that the natural inclination would be, whoa, that's my town. Yeah. Well, I'm so. sure, I'm sure there are people who live in Chicago, for example, who, who say, Every week, as many people are being killed as we typically oh, are hearing yeah. about in the mass shootings, it's, but it's happening, you know, more on a individual basis rather than a mass. So, so it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier, Eric, a million people, you almost disassociate from that. Sure. But one person you can, you can associate, but in the, in the case of Chicago and the violence there, because it's happening so often all the time, we, we almost, we've almost normalized it. Like, well, we can't do, but then when chronic, five sure. or 10 people get killed, like, holy cow, that's, I don't know. It's just, that's how the human mind works. It doesn't make it right or wrong, good or bad. It's, right. it's just the way that it works. Well, one plane crash versus how many people die in an auto wreck. Yeah. <laughs> it's not and, even, and, it's not even a rounding error. It's so vastly different. Yes, it's it's very interesting because, but that's not how people make decisions. So part of what Cialdini talks about in persuasion, and I don't get into this in my book, but um, we give undue importance to whatever is like right in front of us. Daniel Kahneman put it this way, where he said, nothing is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it. <laughs> we, when something True. is put right in front of us, we give it more importance than it actually deserves. And the news is just the best example. I mean, what is the most important problem in the company? Is it immigration? Is it guns? Is it that the president might have slept with a porn star? Is it what? We're just inundated. Everything, every mm-hmm. night seems like it's the most important thing. That's just how our minds work. The challenge is if we understand that, how can we maybe step back and make better decisions? Because we don't want to just fall prey to that one thing in front of us isn't necessarily mm-hmm. the most important. But also then how can we use that to maybe move people in a direction that would be beneficial for them to overcome some of those flaws in, in thinking. That's actually a perfect message to end on. So you would essentially recommend that we just pause. Whatever's coming at us, just pause, take a breath, think about it. Yeah, that, you know, when you think about human behavior, there are events in life, there are outcomes we want. The only thing we truly control is the response that we have in the middle and if we can learn to pause so that we don't just react the way we've always reacted, that might be the right choice to react, but a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it doesn't get us what we want. The more we can create a space in there where we can pause for a moment and think, the better off we'll probably be in the choices that we make. Well, perfect. Now, I recommend everybody pauses and goes to influencepeople.biz 
and check yep. out your book. Yep. And they'll be able to find it on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and, and uh, places like that. I, I know that uh, as we're speaking today, I'm not sure exactly when this will air, but as we're speaking today, the ebook is out. And uh, within a couple of days, the paperback will be out too. I'm sure that by the time people hear this, it'll be both versions will be out. And I have gotten the question a lot will there be an audible version? And yes, mm-hmm. I will do one. I, I just want to get it out there and going. And, and then in the fall, I'm going to explore uh, getting an audible version out there as well. Well, fantastic. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. It was my, my uh, pleasure. And I thank you for having me on, Eric. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com, and there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. What Was That Like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake, or Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone, or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible, its name is a web address, www.jones.show.